0: So tonight I'd like to pick up where Deborah left off when she was talking about this movement of our practice from this place our mind normally inhabits, this world of thought and concept, conceptual reality, and opens to what in at least this practice we call Dhamma, the way things are, the place of insight, and a deepening experience of freedom, the release from the suffering of attachment, from clinging. And uh, one of the, for me, one of the most satisfying and inviting aspects of the Buddhist teachings right from the very beginning when I started studying and hearing these teachings was that he always described both the experience of suffering and the experience of the release from suffering as a natural process. So he takes very quickly when you start reading, hearing about the teachings, uh, they take the sense of like I'm bad because I'm suffering or even I'm good because I'm not suffering. One of the advantages of having now seven days, or whatever it's been, eight days of rain. (laughs) You know, especially this light kind of rain. It really gives us a sense of of how wisdom and awareness, wisdom and mindfulness, how it has this capacity to soak in, and uh, it's a nice image as opposed to Uh, me really wanting to uproot delusion in my mind and in some willful way grabbing a hold of one of the tools that the Buddha gives us and personally getting in there. (laughs) You're laughing because you, (laughs) you like me, we've done that so many times and we've suffered and we'll probably do it a few more times but it wears us down in a good way, that sort of unshakable truth that that's not the way. Right? Trying to get rid of the defilements in that direct, self-centered, from that self point of view way isn't the way. There's something that really has that feel of a natural process more organic. And so, just in terms of languaging that, you know, we say that this path is a path of understanding. We're really taking refuge in the deepening of understanding, the broadening of understanding. And we're taking understanding, the deepening, broadening understanding, as our refuge. That this is what's going to uproot the tendency the established conditioned tendencies to get tight, to resist, to struggle. So even though it's a natural process, part of the natural process is all of us uh, basically doing two things. We're stabilizing our attention, which we call samadhi, so we're Developing calm and balance, and a kind of mind that has enough inner pleasure, inner um, wholesomeness, feels good, that that mind has a kind of integrity. It's just less susceptible to going somewhere else, to worry about this, to wonder about that, to judge somebody. It still does that, of course. But the more the samadhi is established, the more there's calm and stability, then that mind has that penetrative quality. And then, if we add to that deepening, you know, the more and more moments we have where the mind is calm and stable, if we add to that this other piece, which we call the teachings of the Buddha. Some of you know that the word Dhamma. Can mean the teachings of the Buddha, and it can also refer to the way it is, sort of the the truth that Deborah was talking about last night, that wisdom and awareness reveals. And um, so there are teachings. It's basically the Buddha, the Buddha's instructions for what to do with that steady attention. Because there are a lot of things we could do with steady attention. But perhaps there are some things, some contemplations, some ways of looking at our experience that are more productive of the mind seeing what it hasn't seen before. Opening, seeing in ways that support this releasing of of attachment, the releasing of everything that's tight, everything that's heavy. So I mentioned a few days ago when I gave the morning instructions that you know the simple a simple way of remembering the practice is to get comfortable and then check the attitude and just notice is is the heart interested is the heart caring about in a tender way about this life this experience that's arising here and that checking of the attitude is in a way we're just. Uh, Nothing happens if we don't feel at least somewhat safe. So the question is, can we find an attitude that makes it okay to be here now? right? And interest, taking the uh, having the approach of being moving toward experience, that's what interest is, right? As opposed to wanting to get the heck out of here, that brings safety. And knowing, remembering that we can care about it, that we in fact do care about how it is, that it is isn't easy being a human being. It's just simple ways to feel a little bit more safe. And then the basic practice is remembering something is being known and keeping that in mind. In any moment something is in fact being known and just tracking experience that way, which is a way of collecting raw data about the way it is. And then just to kind of understand the trajectory of our practice, we remember our aspiration and all of these three things, the checking of the attitude and the basic training we do, which is remembering that this is being known, this being whatever is predominant or whatever, wherever the attention was directed, this phenomena is being known. And then the goal or the aspiration is moving in the direction of intimacy and non-attachment, or intimacy and non-clinging. Being right in the middle with the heart not clinging. But the Buddha, you know, over the course of several decades, more than four decades, he was a master at skillful means because he, you know, he had the kind of intuition that when people came and asked for instructions, he kind of had a sense of what it was that their mind was almost ready to see but wasn't quite seeing in terms of the way it is, the, the underlying nature of the mind and experience. And so he'd give instructions to help that person, in their practice at that time, to open to whatever they were ready to see next, this path of awakening and this path of awakening. And so there are many. that's why we have a lot of volumes. And then later generations, you know, they started to organize them in different ways. And you probably know, many of you know at least, that there's one collection called the Satipatthana Sutta, the discourse on the foundations of mindfulness. And I want to talk tonight about how some of those contemplations there really help this awareness, this wisdom awareness, see what it needs to see. And some of these instructions will be more relative, uh, relevant to some of you and some to others. So you just, but it's kind of nice to. Get a sense of this array of skillful means that are out there for us to work with. To sort of, like we have a medicine cabinet, and uh, we're, whether you like it or not, in a way, we're responsible, unless you have a teacher at the ready, we're responsible for sort of looking at our medicine chest and having a sense of not just being mindful, but how to direct the attention, what to. Uh, to direct the attention to because one of the teachings that I'd like to go through tonight are called the Four Distortions and it's uh, about really respecting delusion one of the best definitions of delusion I've heard is not thinking that you're not already or thinking that you already see clearly right so no humility in the mind no willingness to sort of be a beginner or be willing to collect new data about how this is what this is because i have an arrogant certainty that i'm at IMS i'm giving a talk i'm you know 58 years old i'm a male i'm identify as a male i'm you know and all these sort of things and so why do i need why would anybody need to be mindful if we're certain you know that I'm great, I'm bad, I'm screwed, things are gonna get better. You know, all these sort of ideas we have, and mostly unquestioned concepts, ideas about ourselves, about others, about the world, about our practice. I mean, isn't it true we have opinions about everything? (laughs) It's no wonder that when we first come on retreat, it feels sort of like, because all of a sudden we're a little bit more sensitive to what it feels like to be moving through the world with a lot of fixed ideas about things. It's, It's really an imprisoning experience when we have enough sensitivity to see that. So tonight as I go through the Buddhist teachings on the four distortions, we're looking at... Uh, another way of looking at the three characteristics that maybe some of you already know about, but how to uproot these deeply embedded tendencies to misperceive what's here, what's right in front of us. Something's a particular way, but the mind, the view in the mind, the perceptual habits, the thinking habits, all in a sense conspire to misperceive what's here. We do this all the time. And I think it really comes down to respecting the power of delusion because, I mean, all of us have had the intention to sort of open to the body or to open to the present moment, but often what I find, you know, initially, especially in the, in the day when I'm not sitting formally, is like, oh yeah, it's my body. I mean, that's what I find when I open to my body. Or this is my body. My body's not doing well today. I'm a little tired. In fact, just a few minutes before coming in, I was telling my colleagues that you know I'm a little tired, and uh, you know, and it's so and it really in that moment seemed like there's me who's tired, as opposed to you know, well there's this sensation. There's this sensation. There's this feeling in the body. This maybe quality of unpleasantness. This. Sensation of heaviness, or this tension around the eyes, or this tension in the throat, or right there's just this uh, array of different feelings and sensations, and this is the seductive part all of my mind's conditioned interpretation of those perceptions and feelings, right? And we very quickly in our kind of normal life, when we don't have a lot of uh, momentum with our mindfulness practice, we very quickly go from a, a moment of being aware of a sensation or a moment of being aware of a perception into our idea, right? We have a thought or a mental image, and then we think about that mental image, and in just a moment or two, we're very far away from that initial moment of, contact of sensation or awareness of a feeling. And we're pretty much, our reality is pretty much defined by the conditioning of the mind and much less uh, arising out of a more immediate and direct experiencing that Deborah was talking about last night. It was interesting, I, I mentioned uh, I think in my earlier talk or somewhere that I had done some retreats here at um, the study center, which is just over the hill, the Barry Center for Buddhist Studies, and then at IMS with this German monk, Bhikkhu Analyo, and he was teaching on the Satipatthana, and, and one of the things he said that I, I thought was really fascinating because conventionally we just think, well, the Satipatthana, this discourse, this collection of teachings from the Buddha are all about how to be mindful And he was saying, yes, in a way, but that maybe more accurately, it's some contemplations to do that really supports the mind in being mindful. Not so much what to be mindful of, although it's it's that in part, but even more so, undertaking these contemplation really frees up the mind, frees up or develops the mindfulness so that the mindfulness can actually the awareness, wisdom awareness can actually see things as they are, not being confused by conceptual reality. And one of the telltale signs that we need further instructions is that we're still suffering. In fact, you can just assume that if you're suffering, there's something happening in the present moment that's not fully understood, right? Because there's a lot of times when in our practice where there's some tension, there's some resistance, there's some struggling going on, but we're pretty sure we're fully mindful. <laughs> and this is the time when it may appear to us that we're being mindful, but we don't really notice how as the attention is going to what we take to be things as they are, it's really getting distorted by our mental formations, the mind's conditioned habits to perceive in certain ways, to think in certain ways, to view things in certain ways. And so it really, that distortion happens um, very, uh, it doesn't show up unless we train the mind to look for it. So let me read this. uh, I'll read this sutta but, uh, from the Buddha, this discourse, but I'll, I'm also gonna start with a few words from Andy Olensky. He used to be the executive director at the Barry Center for Buddhist Studies. So he's a Buddhist scholar and teacher. He's no longer at the study center. And here are his, uh, some of his opening comments about this discourse. The four distortions, the Pali word is vipalasa, so it's the vipalasa sutta, distortions of the mind. So first, Andy sort of picks apart that word distortion or vipalasa. He says, um, putting all the different pieces of that word together, we have the image of a mind taking something up, turning it around, and throwing it back down. A perversion or distortion of reality by the perceptual and cognitive apparatus of the brain. Right? Pick it up, turn it around, put it down. So then what it appears to be is not in fact what it is, It's our concept and it seems related. It seems like it's the same, but it's not. He goes on and says, the distortions are fundamental to the Buddhist notion of ignorance or delusion. It is not that we are inherently flawed in our nature. It is just that we make some serious errors on many levels as we attempt to make sense of the world around us as we come to recognize through meditation practice some of the ways we misconstrue things about our experience. We become more able to correct these errors and gain greater clarity. And then at the end of his notes he says, this is the Buddhist view of mental disease and mental health. Delusion is a mental illness that causes all sorts of suffering. Mental health can be restored by correcting the flaws in how the mind operates. So let me just read the uh, sutta, it's not very long. These four, old practitioners, are distortions of perception, distortions of thought, distortions of view. Sensing no change in the changing, that's number one. Sensing pleasure in suffering. And another way to say the second one is, sensing satisfaction in what is not satisfying. Assuming self, where there is no self, that's three. Sensing the unlovely as lovely. But remember, unlovely does not mean ugly. So sensing in what is neither lovely nor ugly, seeing it as lovely. So it really is challenging uh, when our mind thinks something is beautiful. And I'll talk a little bit about each of these, but let me just finish the discourse. Gone astray with wrong view Beings misperceive with distorted minds. Bound in the bondage of Mara. Mara, most of you know, is the sort of personification of the conditioned tendencies to be tight, to get to grasp, to misperceive. Bound in the bondage of Mara, those people are far away from safety. They are beings that go go on flowing Going again from death to birth, but when in the world of darkness, Buddhas arise to make things bright, they present this profound teaching, which brings suffering to an end. When those with wisdom have heard this, they recuperate their right mind. Right? It feels that way. You know when have you ever noticed like when you're really lost in, in the muck and reacting to it, resisting it? and then because of the momentum of the practice there's a moment of mindfulness and it's like you regain your senses. Oh yeah. You know like I find this all the time with renovation first our house and then our Dharma Center which in the city is done but now we have a little country farm the center owns a country farm in Western Wisconsin that we're renovating and it's like that's what my mind would do. And at first it's sort of joyful to imagine possibilities, but then my mind, you know, you just get sucked in to more details. And then, the, you know, problems and funding and, and it just, all of a sudden, there's a lot of suffering. And then eventually, if we're lucky, the suffering wakes us up. Wait a minute. <laughs> I'm just sitting. Why does it hurt so much? And then the mind sees, oh, there's attachment, right? I mean, this happens in an instant, and then letting go. And we regain our senses. Because the mind knows, right? They recuperate their right mind. They see change in what is changing, suffering where there is suffering, non self in what is without self. They see the unlovely as such. By this acceptance of right view, they overcome all suffering. So, even though that might sound challenging, it doesn't seem sort of unworkable. You know, to train our mind to see change in what's changing, to see suffering where there's actual suffering or dissatisfaction, unsatisfactoriness in things that are unsatisfying, to see no self, not self in what is without self, and to see the unlovely as such. What really motivates us is when we catch ourselves chasing our tail, which is a real insight, I think. Um, we learn something about the mind. When the conceptual mind, the thinking mind, addresses suffering, what does it do? Like when we're there meditating or just going about our life, and then we notice that we're suffering, and because of the habit of always thinking about things, we think, what should I do about the suffering? And because of the habit, we decide to think about it, right? As if thinking about our situation will make it better. I mean, we do this in every way, not just about our own suffering. Don't we think about what's wrong with this country? And we talk, we think with other people about what's wrong with this country, but that doesn't necessarily help, right? And oftentimes, when we're done, Spending an evening—I mean, we could call it complaining or judging, or—but we do that a lot. We think about problems a lot, which is sort of interesting, given what we get from thinking about problems. You know, that we keep doing that over and over again. So when we catch that sort of spinning, that poli- mental proliferation, chasing our tail, reacting to our own reactions that arose from our own reactions, or maybe if we're doing it with each other. But it's like reactivity leading to reactivity leading to reactivity. So when we see that, we begin to get a scent, a clue, of what's the underlying problem. That that this is not where the solution or the resolution to suffering lies in thinking about it, in this conventional or conceptual reality and that's really the initial instruction the Buddha gives you know, to be able to see things in and of themselves and why we often do some really basic training, sort of like uh, kindergarten level training, which is incredibly hard to be aware of one breath coming in, one breath going out you know, to be aware of walking, lifting, moving, placing to be aware of hearing, to just uh, Develop that muscle to see things in and of themselves. To, in moments, um, step outside of the gravitational pull or the distorting field of concept, and just sound is just sound, sight is just sight, sensation is just sensation, feeling tone is just feeling tone. This is from Biku Bodhi. He, uh, I think it was his book. Um, The Great Disciples of the Buddha, which is a wonderful book if you're interested in sort of getting a a little bit more of a sense of what it was like at the time of the Buddha. They just give as much as they can get from the collection of discourses and other early texts, a little biography of some of the main characters um, from the time of the Buddha. And he's talking about one of the the great um, early monks. But he just uh, uh, gives, makes a point about distortion. He says, "Deluded mind becomes overwhelmed by its own imaginary creations, its distorted perceptions and mental constructs. Later in that chapter, he says, instead of correctly comprehending the objects of perception, the diluted mind infiltrated by papancha, which is, just means proliferation, mental proliferation, conceptual proliferation. Spins out a complex of mental commentary that embellishes things with the erroneous notions of mine, I, and myself. We experience a world distorted by perceptual mechanisms overrun by, we experience a world distorted by perceptual mechanisms overrun by, and under the influence of our neurotic self centered thinking and imagining. So this sounds really familiar. Me. And even in Western psychology they talk about this quite a bit, this sometimes called confirmation bias. You know, there's all kinds of uh, all different expressions of this. Let me just read a couple sort of little riffs on this basic habit of basically not being able to trust our perceptual mechanism, our thinking, and our view. Why would we expect it to be accurate? because we see it all the time in others, don't we? How distorted their view is, like they <laughs> But it just never occurs to us that that's also true for us. I mean, I'm not kidding. Just think about your last day. I mean, we wouldn't do it here on retreat, but last day before you came to retreat, how many people you saw and how many times in our mind there was some sense of either that person doesn't have a clue you know, they're just not together, you know, they don't know what's happening, what planet did they come from? I mean, we think this a lot about people. Even if we have very little interaction, we'll do that just based on what they're wearing or their body language or who knows what sort of superficial thing. We'll have all kinds of conclusions that they're disconnected, but. I mean, part of delusion. This is what I meant. A good definition of delusion is not questioning your the accuracy of your views, thinking, and, per, and sort of habits of perceiving. Just assuming that they're accurate, that they're clear. So some of the things they mentioned. This is just from Wikipedia. If you look up confirmation bias. They say it's the tendency to search for, interpret, favor, and recall information in a way that confirms one preexisting beliefs or hypotheses while giving disproportionately less consideration to alternative possibilities. It's a type of cognitive bias and a systematic error of inductive reasoning. So one is when a disagreement becomes more extreme even though the different parties are exposed to the same evidence. Another example they call belief perseverance. When belief beliefs persist after evidence for them is shown to be false. Um, irrational primacy effects, a greater reliance on information encountered early in the series. Like I see one piece of information and I paint an entire picture on it. And then it's a kind of mental laziness, it's like, new information keeps flowing in about the situation, a person, or my own behavior, the skillfulness of my own behavior. But because I've already drawn a conclusion, it's like it's just too tiring to have to reconsider <laughs> what's really going on. So I'll just stay with the established you know, idea that my mind is fixed on. And we do this a lot. It's like, I mean, I notice this even in politics and about ideas. It's like, you just want to have an opinion about something. And then I notice like I'll start reading something and it's like contradicts my view and it's oh it's just exhausting. I don't <laughs> I don't want to have to go back to that don't know mind. It seems safer just to be right, to know what's right. And this is uh, scary about, you know, how we operate in the world because so much suffering, of course, comes out of this. One of the teachers who's been a regular over the years at IMS, although he's getting older now, Bhante Gunaratana, who's been in the States for a long time, but originally from Sri Lanka, a Buddhist monk, wonderful teacher, and one of the great, uh, it's not really even an introduction book, although a lot of people read it as one of their first books, Mindfulness in Plain English. It's just a great Dharma book. And on page 40 and 41 in that book, he says, our human perceptual habits are remarkably stupid <laughs> in some ways. We tune out 99% of the sensory stimuli we actually receive, and we solidify the remainder into discrete mental objects. And then we react to these mental objects in programmed, habitual ways. And you you know, we know how that is because, as I mentioned, we very quickly, when we have one sense contact, we hear something, we see something, we think something, we touch something, and then very quickly there's a perception, a feeling, and then we solidify it into something that we recognize, some idea, we conclude, and then we just keep reacting to that conclusion. And so we, you know. We can regurgitate, we can keep bringing up, like, that person's a jerk. And then we do a little riff. Yeah, that person's a jerk. Because the riff will then lead us right back to, yeah, that person's a jerk. It's like (laughs) the circular thing I was talking about. And we get trapped. He gives the example in this chapter here, you know, about sleeping in the middle of the night and hearing a dog. Or maybe some of you have heard coyotes here, you know. And then, what is that? Well, it's actually just sound and it's as sound it's pretty ephemeral and there's sound and maybe there's a feeling tone that comes up with the sound and maybe there's the mind perceiving it which is like is that a dog, is that a coyote, what is that? Even I don't know what that is is a kind of perception but then it doesn't stop there It could just stop there, right? It could be that little burst where there's that immediate contact of hearing, sense contact of hearing, then immediately there the feeling and whatever perception you have like I don't know what the heck that is or maybe that's a coyote or maybe a staff member has a dog a very small whiny dog (laughs) because coyotes have this sort of strange uh, yell or howl or whatever. But we could create all kinds of stories, you know, and and some of those stories later the next day don't make any sense. Like I notice even uh, sometimes when I'm writing Dharma talks, you know, if I'm I'm not really disciplined and really reflecting on my own practice, my own mind, my own body as I'm sort of doing the talk, it's like it can seem great and then I put it aside and then I have to use my notes and then it's just like it's not helpful you know it's not really doesn't feel real and I'm sure you've done other kinds of planning that seemed good on paper but it wasn't grounded it wasn't sort of connected back so so much it's not that thinking or perceiving or even having views none of that is unnatural or bad It just needs to constantly be tested and informed by direct, immediate experience. Is it in line? Is is it an accurate reflection of my direct, immediate, subjective experience of the body and mind? Otherwise, we're living in our ideas about things, not connected to the underlying reality and then it, it's no wonder that we feel we live a life where we feel so hollow and disconnected and um, alienated from everything because our thoughts about things are not life reality itself. I mentioned in, I, I think maybe the small group or maybe in a one-to-one interview, this wonderful teacher for, teaching from Joko Beck who is one of our great matriarchs in uh, American Buddhism. The, Abbott of the uh, San Diego Zen Center for many decades. She's dead now, died maybe five or more years ago, but has written a couple of wonderful books. Uh, she comes from the Zen tradition, but her books are really accessible for anybody who practices. But she gives us a sort of simile of somebody building a really nice house with big windows and a nice door and sitting on a hill and just a very pleasant place. But because that person's neurotic, they go ahead and build another house right on top of it. And so their house that they're living in gets really dank and dark and very unpleasant. And this is a sort of a simile for this conceptual proliferation, this the mind's dependence on thinking and its fixation on its ideas about things being reality, so much so that we don't even realize we're doing it, which is what we call ordinary reality. I think uh, it was Ajahn Buddhadasa that somebody asked, like, uh, from an awakened point of view, how would that person see the world? And his response was, lost in thought, right? That that's how you sum up the world, lost in thought. Of course, there's a lot of different thoughts. And later in this chapter, Bhante Gunaratana writes, Vipassana meditation teaches us how to scrutinize our own perceptual process with great precision. We learn to watch the arising of thought and perception with a feeling of serene detachment. We learn to view our own reactions to stimuli with calm and clarity. We begin to see ourselves reacting without getting caught up in the reactions themselves. The obsessive nature of thought slowly dies. We can still get married. We can still step out of the path of a truck, but we don't need to go through hell over either one. This escape from the obsessive nature of thought produces a whole new view of reality. It is a complete paradigm shift, a total change in the perceptual mechanism. It brings with it the bliss of emancipation from obsessions. Because of these advantages, Buddhism views this way of looking at things as the correct view of life and Buddhist texts call it seeing things as they really are. And there's a really useful simile in the teachings. It's not just in the Buddhist tradition. All of the uh, Indian sort of spiritual traditions have some version of the same story, and you might have heard it. It's sort of a parable or a simile that's used a lot, and so I'll just put it in the context of you know being at IMS and taking a nice walk in the woods, and maybe it's dusk, so it's, the light's not so good, or it's cloudy like it's been here. And you round the bend, and there's this sort of curved brown thing lying on the trail. And before you know anything, you've just jumped back. Your sort of stress response, you know, you're very alert, frightened, because probably genetic, I'm guessing, uh, built into our genetic code is fear of snakes. So you see something, and the mind, snake. That's the first thing, because it's better to err on the side of mistakenly seeing something, a stick, let's say, or a piece of rope, or whatever it might be. Better to err on the, the side of it being a snake than, well, it's probably just a branch. But here's what happens. So that's totally understandable, that initial misperception, like why that would be there. Same way, I mean, a more obvious example would be, let's say you, ha- you go to work at an office. You walk into the office and uh, somebody you're somewhat friendly with, uh, you say hi to them and they don't look up. And you didn't notice that they have earbuds in. And so uh, there's that perception like, why is she ignoring me, <laughs> right? And so that similar thing. So then now let's go back to the story of the snake. So you jump back a little bit, sort of make sure you're safe. And then, so initially it was just a very understandable misperception, and you can totally understand why our perceptual mechanism isn't always going to be accurate, because the light's not good enough, or, you know, we didn't get a good look, or because of our genetic code to err on the side of safety, or whatever it might be. But then we start to think about it, wow, that's a big snake. You know, it seems to me I read recently, which, which is true, that people have been into having uh, big reptiles and snakes, and then eventually get tired and don't know how to take care of them and set them free. So we conveniently forget that that article was about people in Florida and we're Massachusetts. right? This is part of that perceptual distortion, like the facts that support the conclusion the mind has. And we keep thinking about it, right? So now not, there's not just the distortion of per, perception, but there's the ongoing dis- distortion of thinking. We're thinking in a way that doesn't match up with the facts on the ground. And then it gets even more ossified, institutionalized into a view because we start to talk about, it. you know what I saw on the trail? <laughs> right? And even when someone says, there aren't snakes, you know, maybe small ones, but there aren't big snakes here, you know, and they're definitely not poisonous snakes here. But then you just like you have to like that cognitive dissonance, that person's a diluted type, you know. <laughs> because they're probably thinking in the old days there probably weren't snakes, but they don't realize that there are a lot of people keeping <laughs> snakes as pets and getting tired of them and releasing them. This is actually happening in the Everglades, by the way. People have released snakes and they've just proliferated. Because that would be the next thought, like, because as you're walking back the same way you came, you'd be wondering this is more thinking in the establishment of that fixed view. I bet they've been mating. <laughs> it's like, because you're going to be looking to see if there are more snakes around. And everything that even could possibly be a snake, right? Because that's how our mind works and then it gets really established and then before we know it it's like everybody at IMS knows that there are snakes (laughs) and nobody will walk the trails. (laughs) So and just to see that dynamic between the perceptual distortion when we see something that's not the way it is we think about it when we think about it it gets established as a view then when it's a view then that affects how we see things, right? If we think there, if we're pretty certain that this person is angry at me, then everything this person does we interpret in terms of that idea, that fixed idea, that she's some for some reason upset, and I don't know why. Um, but I'll maybe I'll ask her, or maybe I'll just get even first. <laughs> like. She's throwing me out of her heart. I'm going to throw her out of my heart, right? Because the last thing I want is to be out there hanging where I still am being nice to her, but she's not being nice to me. So you just see what kind of world we set in motion this way. I mean, this, this is, of course, we see this in terms of racism and classism and sexism and all these different ways that we have systemic biases through our culture uh and uh it's very hard to start to honestly acknowledge how we are perceiving in distorted ways thinking in distorted ways viewing things understanding things in distorted ways it's really um more and more Dharma centers around the country are finding this so central to this path of awakening that the Buddha taught to sort of start looking at these other systemic biases that have been laid down. It's, it's no, in a way it's nobody's fault or it's all of our fault, but the real po- important point is we have every incentive to do the difficult work of beginning to uncover these biases. Because not only do we set in motion suffering for people that we throw out of our heart or that we see in a particular way that doesn't line up with reality, but it's a prison for our own life to live, be living out of these unseen biases, these distorted ways of perceiving. This is from a well-known Tibetan teacher, Dilgo uh, Kensei Rinpoche. He's, he's died a, a while back, I believe. He said in terms of these a distortion, sentient beings, self and others, enemies and dear ones, all are made by thoughts. It is like seeing a rope and mistaking it for a snake. When we think that the rope is a snake, we are scared. But once we see that we are looking at a rope, our fear dissipates. We have been deluded by our thoughts. Likewise, mentally fabricating self and others we generate attachment and aversion. You know The whole world of suffering comes out of these mistaken ways of seeing. So I'll just mention a few of the specific teachings the Buddha has to kind of help us uproot. And again, it's not really that different than being mindful. But it's being mindful using a particular frame or using a particular theme, like how and where to direct attention. So, like, for example, seeing no change in the changing. I mean, one of the amazing things is that the um, reality of death is pretty obvious. Intellectually, we get that everybody dies, and even intellectually, we get that we die. But not really, right? Mostly, it just, we don't actually bring that fact into view that we're going to die. And not, not just theoretically, but like for example, every breath we take is one more breath in the direction of our last breath. Because one day, one moment, it will be our last breath in, or our last breath out. and. There's so many things, not just in terms of the mortality of this body, but there's so many things that we just habitually see it as permanent. I'm sure there were many moments on this retreat where it felt permanent. (laughs) This this is never going to end. (laughs) It still may feel that way. (laughs) So we can train the mind to keep impermanence to keep change in view but right? we can purposefully like with mindfulness you could do it with the breath you can do it with feeling tone to notice that feeling tone isn't a thing it's it's a changing process it comes into being and goes out of being sound sight breath sensation everything can be a really useful vehicle to, basically we're collecting data that challenges this perceptual thinking view distortion of seeing permanent in what's actually impermanent. But we have to work at it because remember, once the view of seeing things in terms of permanence, once that's established in the mind, it affects how we see things. So we have to, we need that theme to challenge the distortion that's already present. If the mind wasn't distorted, we wouldn't need the Buddhist teachings on impermanence. But because the mind it has this bad habit with a lot of momentum, then we need these teachings. Basically, saying, practitioners, you know, pay attention to what's impermanent. another teaching that, uh, that's in the Satipatthana. So just in terms of that, that teaching on mortality, the, the way it's described in the Satipatthana Sutta is the contemplation of our own mortality. And there are different ways to do it. You can do it in somewhat graphic ways where you imagine what that's like and uh, you know just bringing that image to mind. Many of you, I'm sure, have had, I think, the good fortune of seeing a dead body, and uh, you can bring that to mind, like say, as with that body, same with this body. This, there's no difference, it's just the, this, the timing's different. But there are many other ways, but the question is are we going to do that? And how are we going to do that in a way that's really enlivening and liberating? Right? Because It's not that uh, the the freedom comes from no longer living within that superstructure that we put over our life, that sort of delusion, because we miss our life. Thich Nhat Hanh has a great change. It says, I forget exactly how he says it, but it's, this is a terrible paraphrase, but like, hallelujah for impermanence. It makes everything possible, right? (laughs) because nothing would be possible without change, without things coming and going. And then another way, another teaching from the Buddha in the Satipatthana Sutta that really addresses this distortion of sensing satisfaction in what is actually not satisfying has to do with studying feeling, the feeling tongue. And I remember on retreat once sitting in the dining hall here, I think during a three-month retreat, and uh, had my oatmeal during breakfast, and you know I had it just the way I like it, And, uh, and I was just going back and forth from this distorted perception where the pleasantness of being in the dining hall, having my food, liking the taste of my food, having there still be more in the bowl to eat of my food. So the pleasantness of all of those perceptions sort of created this distortion that somehow the pleasantness of this moment was somehow uh, satisfying in a lasting way, more than what it actually was. And I would just flip back and forth, one moment after another, from like feeling somewhat satisfied, to this more equanimous, like, it's just breakfast, it's just oatmeal, it's just warm, it's just smooth, it's just filling, it's just, it's just. So not dismissing the experience, but not letting it be more than it actually was. And to go back and forth like that and a similar experience of being at Gaston Pond some afternoon doing some walking practice and it was uh, right at sunset in the fall all the leaves, all the trees around the pond there, I don't know if you know the bigger pond um, along the loop and uh, it was really beautiful, sun was going down, the light, the clouds, the trees, the reflection on the lake and this is more this uh, seeing the uh, seeing the unlovely or seeing uh, what we would normally take to be lovely, seeing the unlovely and what we take to be lovely, and it's not that it wasn't that it was ugly, but that the the conception that this is beautiful was extra and not necessary, and it was confusing to the mind, because whenever my mind had the thought without wisdom that it's beautiful. I wanted a cabin. I wanted to live there, you know? It's like, I gotta move here. This is so nice. How can I make that happen? How can I find this in Minnesota, right? And that proliferation is stressful, right? There I am in a really nice moment, and what am I doing? Wanting it to be a different moment. That's called suffering. And it really can break our heart open in those really simple ways when we catch how the conceptual proliferation really literally destroys the peace that's available in that moment, the release that's actually available in that moment. but in a way, the mind chooses to suffer, instead, you know, to get involved in mental proliferation that is literally like the chasing your own tail. Reacting to reactions of reactions, and on and on. More and more like that. And then another one is assuming self where there is no self. And one way that uh, is embedded in the Satipatthana Sutta is to study the body, actually, because more than anything, you know, we either think we own the body, or that somehow I'm in the body, or that me and the body are one but it's very much, the body's of course very much associated with the idea of me, of mind. And so we can train ourselves. and this is something we do all the time in our training. We don't necessarily talk or Deborah did this morning about the four elements, but this is just a more specific way to talk about opening to the body, opening to sensation in the body in and of themselves, sensation as sensation. And so instead of saying, okay, I'm aware of my body, it's more that hardness is being known, or softness is being known, or heaviness is being known, or lightness is being known, smoothness or roughness or heat or coolness is being known, movement is being known, stillness in the body is being known. So those elements of the body don't really have anything to do with the concept of my body or the image of my body. Hardness is just hardness as a direct immediate experience. And so the more that we train the mind to feel the body in this elemental way, not distorted by the image I have of my body or the ideas. Now how many times when we've been doing mindfulness of breathing has in a kind of stealth way, the mind interjected a little video, a little documentary of what it thinks the breathing process is. So we think we're being mindful of the breath, but we're actually watching some mental image, like a video. And some of you would have more of an abstract video, and some of it would be, you know, your sort of recreating of the anatomical process of breathing. But it's not the direct experience of movement of the abdominal wall or touching as the breath goes in and out of the nostrils. It's really observing the idea of breathing or the mental image of breathing. No, we don't need to feel badly about that. We just want to notice, well, that's that. That's that cognitive activity being known, right? Instead of misinterpreting it perceiving it as the body. No, because breathing is the experience of movement. If, for example, if we're feeling the, the abdominal wall or a feeling of touch or hard, the hardness of that touch or the smoothness of that touch or the coolness of that touch, the heat as it's coming out of that touch, that's what we're feeling. Or the, just the feeling of movement itself, the pressure of the movement. So we're learning to tune in. And we think like, why am, I, why am I doing this? But we don't realize that little by little, we're collecting data that is going to slowly overwhelm the distorted view that the body is my idea. The idea of my body is the body. Or the idea of me is me. No, it's just a thought. Just a thought, Mark. You know, and all the other thoughts. So things start to get real uh, more open and more free. The more we begin to do the work of uprooting these distorted ways of perceiving, thinking, and viewing. And so this is the great uh, benefit of doing some study, listening to dharma talks, and getting the instruction so that in those moments when the awareness is more stable, more clear, then we know how to go to work, what to pay attention to, how to collect data so that step by step by step, we're seeing things in and of themselves. The collection of that data slowly overwhelms any kind of wrong view we have, any habits of seeing things particular ways. So that's how the uh, uprooting of wrong view, it's not something that I go in and sort of, okay, I don't want to have wrong view, I don't want to see things incorrectly anymore and I'm just gonna remove it. We just have to start collecting moments of honest, clear seeing and wrong or view will be affected. Because what does view come out of? It comes out of the totality of experience. So we need to transform that sort of experience. And the thing is, experience that comes from mindfulness is much more potent than experience that has just been laid down from semi-conscious attention. So when we're really clear, Know that we're clear, know that the mind is seeing things as they are. Those moments of seeing really make an impact on the habit energies of the mind. I mean, we heard today, I did at least in my interviews, people describing, you know, if you told your friend, they would think, well, what are they talking about? Because it seems like such an ordinary moment. But somebody describes just a moment of seeing something as if for the first time, and how many ripples that has just seeing change, or seeing peace, or seeing something as just that, free of attachment, free of identification. And it changes the mind stream going forward. That mind, this mind, will never be the same after that moment of seeing. It really is in the direction of liberation. and It really changes our relationship to the world. So instead of this world being a playground where we're looking for a nice sense experience and trying to avoid the painful experiences, we're really looking at the world, engaging the world as a place to learn, right? It's like a teacher. Every experience is a teacher. It's an opportunity to collect another moment of data, wisdom data, right, that begins to chip away or erode erroneous ways of thinking, seeing, and viewing things. I'll just end by reading something from Joseph Goldstein. This came out, uh, it was an interview quite a while ago. It's just very simple um, about him describing his practice. I just really appreciate, have appreciated over the years. It was in Inquiring Mind about 15 years ago which is a journal for our Vipassana community. So in that interview, Joseph said, when people ask me now what I practice, I say that it is not clinging. The practice has become that simple, not clinging, and then moments of recognizing clinging, and then not clinging, and so on. The particular method of doing that practice may be constantly changing. Sometimes it will feel appropriate to stabilize the mind on the breath. At, a, at other times, it will feel right to rest in a more open, empty awareness. Sometimes it will feel right to open up the energy of the body through the sweeping technique. The practice is guided intuitively, and it's seamless, totally seamless. So let's just sit together for a minute. Allow the words to dissipate, no need to hold on.